0: Uh, Today's reading is from Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, from the tribe of Levi, 12,000, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
1: Every week, gets weirder and weirder. Uh, My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, it is so good to have you. I'd love to meet you. Um, Or you can fill out one of those Connect cards, as Lydia said. Um, We're obviously, if you're new or you haven't been with us the last handful of weeks, we are in a series in the book of Revelation. And to continue our time in the book of Revelation today... Maybe to orient us or to center us a bit on what is the purpose of this text, I'm going to start with a question that might feel a tad bit philosophical or abstract. just just feels like status quo for Missio. But hopefully by the end of their time together, you will understand why I've asked this question. So here it is. How do you think about time? How do you think about time? How do you tell time? How do you feel about time? How do you think about time? Sometimes people say that time is a construct, so maybe you think about time as a construct. Sometimes people say time is a flat circle. But how do you think about time? How do you feel about time? How do you find your place in time? There's a piece of art that I really like that I think plays a bit with how we think about time by a woman named um, Julieta Aranda. And here it is. Tell me if you notice anything wrong about this clock. (laughs) So this clock is done in 10 decimal time. And 10 decimal time was an invention of the French Revolution when the idea of rationalism was at its height. And the idea was that all things could be rationally governed perfectly, succinctly, empirically decided and determined. And so during the French Revolution, this 10 decimal clock was invented and then very quickly rejected. But you'll notice it moves in 10-hour increments. Those 10 hours then are broken up into 100 minutes and 100 minutes or a minute is broken up into 100 seconds. And it was meant to be like the perfect expression of rational time. And so this artist presents time in this way, this perfect image of rational time. But then she does something that is very interesting. The second hand, which is in red, well, it doesn't actually count seconds in this piece of art. It's computer connected to the artist's heart rate. And so the second time moves at different times depending upon the heart rate of the artist. And what it is intending to communicate is the way in which time Well, it can feel different depending upon the experiences that we're having or depending upon the anxiety levels that we bring to a moment or depending upon whether we're waiting on a beach for a sunset or waiting in the most stressful place on earth, an airport. Time feels different in those moments, and so this whole clock can be reoriented depending upon the artist's heart rate to communicate that time, well, sometimes it's actually hard to tell depending upon the moment that we're in or the circumstances in which we find ourselves in. And I love this image for that reason, that time is something we think about as never changing or as consistent. And in some ways you could say that it is. But at the same time, time feels different depending on where we are or what moment we're living in. Time feels different depending upon where we're waiting. Time feels different if we're stressed or if we're anxious or if we are rested. And at like an existential level, time feels different depending upon your view of the universe. Time can feel random and chaotic from moment to moment. Or sometimes time feels purposeful and deliberate. And other times it feels something else, determined in a negative way, nihilistic. And I think all of this means that time is sometimes... Hard to tell. And as that is true of all of us, just generally, that it is hard to tell time generally, it is especially hard to tell time as followers of Jesus. And it is hard to tell time as followers of Jesus because we believe in more than one time zone. I said this to Haley earlier, and she's like, Do you know how time zones work? (laughs) Obviously not. But as followers of Jesus, we believe that more than one time zone exists. We believe that in history, the person of God entered into the world in the form of Jesus and that we live in the wake of that historic moment. And so we have this past-oriented faith in that Jesus has done something, accomplished something. We live in the wake of that time. But then we also believe that we live in a present moment, here and now, current age. Sometimes that current age feels difficult and listless and full of sin or overcome by the difficulties of the world around us. We live in this current age. But as we've been exploring in the book of Revelation, we also believe that there is a coming age. There is some hope on the horizon as God brings in a new world order. And so in some senses, you could say we live or have knowledge of three different times as followers of jesus and so i think it can be hard for us as christians to tell time accurately which time are we living in right now what moment are we in at this gesture in time as we read the book of revelation that feels especially difficult because it is often dealing with different times and trying to figure out like is this moment here or is this moment coming later and that's what we find in Revelations chapter 7. We come to this interlude moment. We were just looking at Jesus opening the seals from the scroll, and the scroll is God's plan to rescue the world. And in Revelation 7, there's this like little interlude in between the seals opening, in between the gestures and things that we've experienced around us. And we get this image of two different times. In Revelation 7, verse 1 through 8, this first part of the chapter that Rhea read, we have an image of present time. It's the world in which we live now. And the reason we know that it's the world in which we live now is you have this image that seems strange to us of the angels like holding evil at bay. And if you remember last week, we talked about how Revelations like 6 through 17 is like a painting. So it's like all these images, all these symbols that are kind of representative of different things. And in the Bible, the writers of the Bible imagine God is holding the forces of darkness at bay. Right? See so this picture that God is like keeping something at bay. We're living in the moment that we are now because God is keeping the waters or the winds or the forces of chaos or the forces of evil at bay. That's present time. But then in Revelation 7, verse 9 through 17, You have an image of future time or coming time. But the Lamb is victorious, and it says that Jesus wipes away every tear. That's a picture of what is to come. And if we're still having a conversation about time, I think there's two different ways we can look at this, or maybe multiple different ways that we can look at these two different pictures. Often, the way we talk about these two moments in the book of Revelation is like this here's a graph. That there is this present time that we live in, and it's moving, like, chronologically towards some future or coming time. I think this is often how we talk about things in the book of Revelation. So we live in present time, and as time just advances, we'll move into the future. So that's one way of looking at these two images. Present time moving towards coming time. Or another way of looking at this is this. This is maybe a more apocalyptic image of the book of Revelations, that God's future time is actually coming towards us and God is at work rescuing us out of present time to bring us into coming time or kingdom time. Two different images that separate these two time zones. I think these are the two traditional ways that we look at the book of Revelations. But what's interesting is that this is not how Jesus talks about time at all. This is not how he thinks about the coming kingdom or the coming era or the world to be. In Luke 17, verse 20, a group of Pharisees are asking Jesus about when is the kingdom going to come? When is future time going to be enacted? And the Pharisees say in 1720, the Pharisees asked Jesus when God's kingdom was going to come. And this is what Jesus says in response. He replied, God's kingdom isn't coming with signs that are easily noticed. Nor will people say, look, here it is, or there it is, don't you see? Instead, God's kingdom is already among you. God's kingdom is already among you. Jesus has a different understanding of time than we often do. Instead of it being some future off in the distance time and some present time, Jesus talks about time far more like a Venn diagram. That there is present time, and there is coming time, and we actually live in some way at the intersection of those two moments. Sometimes the theological word for this is that God's kingdom is already, not yet. Already, not yet. That God has done something, God is bringing something into reality, and it has begun, and it is percolating, and it is starting all around us, but it is not yet finished. It's not yet complete. Then in Revelation 7, we are getting an image of this already that still has some things to unfold. Now what does that mean for us as people who live in this intersection of present time and future time? Well, in Revelation 7, verse 3, here's what John sees in his vision. He says this. God speaks to those angels and says, Don't damage the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have put a seal on the forehead of those who serve our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. Now there are a lot of things here to unpack, but let's start with what it means to be sealed. And I promise this image is connected. So here in this moment, you have an image of Christians being sealed by God. And so think about in that moment like a royal signet, like a wax signet that you would use on like an envelope to like send wedding invites today. I think that's the only reason we use seals today. It's fancy correspondence. But in the ancient days, it was used to mark something as belonging to like the royal family. And so this moment, it says that the the Christian church, the people of God have been marked by God. They have been sealed by God. But how are we sealed? And what does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in Ephesians 1, verse 13. Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied towards our redemption as God's own people. But listen to the language at that moment. It says that we are sealed by the Spirit who is a down payment. And we'll see similar language in uh, Paul in Romans 8, 23. says that we have received the Spirit who is the first fruit of God's work. So in this moment, what it means to be sealed with the Spirit means that the Spirit makes present in us What is coming around us? The Spirit is making present in us what is coming around us. Theologians Stanley Howard Wasson and William Willemont say it like this Because a new world has been made present through the Spirit, we believe that we are a people of a new age, even though the old age continues. In the Spirit of God, we live at the intersection of those two times, but not like listlessly or held at bay. We live in that as a people experiencing what is to come. That that already that Jesus talked about is already in, uh, sometimes Jesus would describe it like a mustard seed that gets planted in a garden and begins to sprout. Where is that mustard seed present? Oh, it's present in the people of Jesus. That as we are forgiven, we are a first fruit of what is coming in the kingdom. And as we know Jesus, it is a first fruit of what is coming in the kingdom. As we experience reconciliation because of the unity around Jesus, it is a coming sign of what will happen in the kingdom. The Spirit seals us and makes present in us what is to come. That's what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. We live in between two times, making the future time present time. Making real what is to come. And that might feel totally abstract and pointlessly ethereal. <laughs> it's fair to think that. So why does that matter for us that we live at this intersection of these two times, sealed by the Spirit? And I think, at least at one level, it's because our thoughts on time determine how we live in time. How we think about the future, how we think about what God is doing in the world around us, how we think about what God is bringing on the horizon determines how we live in this moment. And I feel like most of us live in time like it is about waiting. Like that our lives are about waiting for something to happen. Like they were waiting for something to come, some big moment to arrive. And a lot of life feels like this. I just, uh, you probably know this, I just finished my doctorate, and I feel like in some levels, I spent my entire adult life waiting to finish school, which is true. I feel like that because that's true. (laughs) And I got done... And the immediate question I asked myself and that other people asked me very fairly is, oh, what's next? And it's like that one gesture in time was finished, and so what is the other thing that you're waiting for now? What is the next thing that you are waiting for? And for a lot of the answer was like, uh, nothing. I, I don't know. Because life feels like waiting. It feels like I should have some kind of expectation on the horizon, something that I am waiting for. And I feel like that's how lots of life feels, like we spend it waiting, like we're waiting to go on vacation. Like we spend a lot of our lives like rushing through the airport to get somewhere to wait. Our life feels like it's rushing to wait somewhere. But Revelation presents us with a different image of time. It's less like we are waiting in an airport for something to arrive and more like we are participating in a gardening process where something is already arriving, something is emerging, something is growing. And those are radically different postures in terms of waiting. I've told this a lot, but for me, airports are places that are just like full of anxiety. They're just like the most stressful environments in the world. And I think a lot of it is because you are waiting for one moment. And there's a lot of things that can ruin your ability to wait for that one moment, which seems to always happen to me. I always get pulled out of line, and Tori says it's because I look anxious. (laughs) It's just like I'm fulfilling my own prophecy. But you have all this stress that, for me, is like waiting on that one moment to arrive. But in the book of Revelations, the image is that something is already arriving. And less like waiting in an airport, it's like gardening. And in gardening, we participate in the growth of something around us. You tend to plants, you watch them grow over time, you water, and you begin to see the first fruits of something. And sometimes they don't grow the way that you want them to, and so you adjust, and you weed, and you change what you're doing, and you prune. Gardening is an interesting practice that holds some tension of time. You live in the present moment as a gardener. You pay attention to what's happening right around you, recognizing that some things are far outside of your control, and yet you tend and work and put your hands into something. And you do so with an eye on what is to come that something is going to grow from that work, that some new harvest is on the horizon, that you're waiting and curating and cultivating and tending towards the end of something. Gardening holds the tension of more than one time together. Sometimes we read the book of Revelation, I think like we are waiting for an airport or waiting at an airport waiting for a vacation. It's like we're waiting for God to come to rescue us, to end the world, and to bring in a new age. And when we tell the story of Revelations that way, it means that I think for us we live this place with the anxiety of one moment. Like we're waiting for one moment to come. And all of our lives and all of our orientations and all of our work is about that one moment. So it's like if I, if I believe in Jesus enough, then I have made it to that one moment. I've bought my ticket for the airplane to get out of this place. Or maybe if the emphasis is on being holy, it's about being holy so that you can leave this place, that so you can get out, so that you can be rescued from the world around you. Or if it's about church attendance, or if it's about baptism, or if it's about keeping the Sabbath, if it's about any of these things, then it is about doing those things for the sake of getting out. It's like waiting at an airport. You're doing the right things in order to leave. But if the kingdom is a place that is already emerging in the midst of us, as Jesus told it, and if life in the Spirit is about making real that kingdom here and now, then we are intended to be firmly rooted in the present, not waiting for some future to come. We live and move and have our being here. We have a work that we've been called to and a task that we have been granted. We do that work while watching and seeing and waiting on the kingdom that is emerging around us. We wait like a gardener or like parents. Who, yes, you have dreams about what what the future might hold for a child, but if you only dream about the future, what happens to the present that kid lives in? It's not great. Matt, who's one of our deacons, told me that they're thinking, I didn't tell you I was going to tell the story. Um, Just Nod up or down if you're okay with it. Um, Matt told me that they're talking about their pregnancy process, and they're referring to it as like a mustard seed process. And how beautiful is that, that there is something growing in the midst of them? Revelations talks about time in that way, like a mustard seed, or like a baby that is growing, or like a garden that is coming to harvest. But there is things to do now, and hope on the horizon. I think that's actually what this very strange reference to 144,000 is referring to. You might be familiar with this image because sometimes it's used by different religious groups to talk about maybe like a special group of people who are saved and sealed. But I don't think that makes much sense in light of the context of this passage because in this passage, the 144,000 exist on earth. They're not some unique group that live in the future. Instead, it is a symbol— that is intended, I think, to speak to the church. So 144,000 is a multiply of the 24 elders that we saw already at the beginning of Revelations. Ancient people love math, not so much for communicating direct information, but for symbols of things. Seven is a number of perfection. And so all throughout the book of Revelation, we see 12 popping up or 24 popping up to refer to the people of God. And here, 144,000, I think, is the multiplication of those people of God to say a lot of people are called by God on earth. And then it lists them like a, like a census or often what would happen in the Old Testament is you would list out army divisions this way. But there are 12,000 from this group who have a purpose and a task. There's 12,000 from this group who have a purpose and a and a task. It's actually less about the number being exact and more about giving us a referent for what's happening, that the people of God are being given a mission like an army or like a community to do something in the world around them. And the reason that is important for all the things that we have just talked about is it is, again, reinforcing this idea that God has filled us with his spirit, sealed us to live at the intersection between these two times so that we would live with purpose and intention as the people of God. That our lives are not random, they're not chaotic, and they're not about waiting for some future kingdom to come and rescue us. Instead, we are called to participate in the work that God is doing here and now. So the question is, how do we live in more than one time zone? How do we live at that intersection? Well, I think in the second part of this chapter, John sees immediately a vision that shifts his view towards what is to come. Revelation 7, verse 9 is what John sees. It says, After this I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. So the 144,000 has just expanded into a great crowd They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John sees this image that reminds us of what is to come right in the middle of Revelation so far in 4 and 5. We saw these images that we said were the centering images of Revelation. Images of Jesus and God on the throne ruling as the Lamb. And the invitation in this moment is to worship. And the reason that we get this invitation to worship in this space is because it reminds us that there is a better world on the horizon. And so if we're going to be a people who live at the intersection of two different times, we have to have an image of what world is actually coming What is it that we hope in? What is it that the future that we want God to bring actually is? Because in this moment, it is this beautiful picture of a reconciled people who unite themselves around the throne of Jesus and live in unity. Is that the image that we have? Is it big as that? It presents us an image of worship because in worship, we get an expanded imagination for what is possible in the world around us, which we need if we're going to live at the intersection of two different times. I heard once that worship is a protest act. In some ways that makes sense for the book of Revelation, that we would be protesting our present time by pointing to a future time. So we get an image of worship. How do we live at the intersection of times? Oh, we live in worship. Because worship points us towards what is to come, and as we worship, well, I think we actually begin to enact that future time right here right in the midst of us. It's like in worship, we get to begin to live out this thing that God is doing around us. Now, here's the thing about that, it is risky to do. In verse 13 and 14, you have this conversation between John who's seeing this vision and one of the elders, and it says, then one of the elders said to me, who are these people wearing white robes who are worshiping? Where do they come from? And John said to him, sir, you know. Then he said to me, these people have come out of great hardship. They have washed their robes and made them white in the lamb's blood. It is risky to live in God's future time in our own present time. I don't know if you've ever had like a thing that you dream in and that you have taken risks in. It's risky to do that. My best friend just quit his job, which is like very stable. It's a very stable job. He made good money, great benefits. His wife doesn't work. He just quit it because he was like, "It it doesn't align with my values anymore. It no longer aligns with how I want this family to live. And that is a deeply risky thing to risk in this kind of value-centered dream. And even more is that true of when we try to live out the way of Jesus in the world around us. It is risky to live the way of Jesus around us. It is risky to declare that a different God governs the universe. It is risky to declare that we should forgive. It's risky to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. There is risks that come with that decision. It is risky to worship, to live out the future time in the present time. It's risky to live the way of Jesus. And those risks will cost us, which is why it switches back to an image of worship at the end of this passage in verse 15 and 17. John says, this elder continues to go on, it says, These people in white robes, they worship him day and night in the temple And the one seated on the throne will shelter them. Here they won't hunger or thirst anymore. No sun or scorching heat will beat down on them because the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. It is risky to live out the way of Jesus, the future way of Jesus in the present and so this image ends with this beautiful picture of what is in store for followers of Jesus the hope of the world that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eye and Missio, as we like hear that image and as we see it and as we reflect on it it leads us with like a big question what if we believe that What if the image of worship that is presented in this moment of Jesus on the throne and of this guarantee that Jesus will enter into our lives and wipe away every tear, what if that was a thing we believed? What if we believed that we were sealed by God's Spirit to live at the intersection of time, that we have received the first fruits, the down payment, the guarantee of God's coming world? What if we believed that? What might be possible in our midst? What might we be willing to risk? What lives might we live? That's the reason Revelation is written. Revelation is written to a community of Christians who are struggling with the question, how do we live as the people of God when it is not easy? When there's not very many of us, there's not a lot of believers around, they don't have cool church buildings, they don't have money in the bank, they don't even have paid vocational clergy in most instances, it is difficult in that moment to be a follower of Jesus. And so they receive this letter as, like a, as a manual, as an image, as a call to live out the way of Jesus despite the difficulties around them, to have hope despite the difficulties around them. And so the same question comes to us, what if this was true? You see, how might we live different if we believed that we lived as the intersection of time? And if we believe that God's time was guaranteed, what might that do to our fear? What might that do to our reservations? What might that do to our values? What might that do to the things that we invest so much time and energy and resources in? What if, Missio? And Missio, as we close, we're going to gather at this table. And the reason that we do that every single week, among different reasons, but the reason that we're going to do it this week is that we believe this table is in some ways a practice of that intersection of time. We believe that God is laying a wedding feast. Sometimes that's how the end of the world is described in the book of Revelation. The coming kingdom will be like a wedding feast. And so as we gather at the table, it's like we are enacting that wedding feast and inviting all the world to come. So I'm gonna pray. And then as you come to this table and as you continue to worship, would you ask yourself that question, what if I really believe this thing that Jesus says is true? What life might I live? What world or time might I participate in? Let's pray. Jesus, would you, through your spirit today, reveal to us like a deeper, bigger, more challenging image of your coming world? Just one that gives us the resources to, to believe that something different is possible in this place, in this time. God, that as the church, we're called into something so much bigger than we often live in, so much bigger than our often petty concerns. God, that we are invited to participate in the emergence of your world. So God, just help us to see it today. Help us to know our lives as a part of that story today that we have been filled with your spirit to do it. God, would that reshape our fears, would it reshape our values in a way that is uh, liberating and freeing? In a way that like lightens the load in many ways. We don't wait for one moment, but are participating in your moments. It's good to help us see it. Help us to live it as we leave this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Monsieur, when you're ready, we invite you to the table. Um, you can come and take communion at the table. Take as much time there as you want. The elements are still sealed. Uh, or if you feel more comfortable, you can take the elements go back to your seats. And there will also be someone over here if you would just like to pray with someone. Thanks, Thanks,